Um, well, like I said, you know, when we look at our culture, there's very little discernment in our culture as a whole. And then in the Christian culture, it, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a small reflection of the, the main culture. And, uh, you know, if you were to look at the majority of sermons, Bible studies out there, uh, books and Christian bookstores, uh, and, and you really looked for, um, uh, you looked at the content, I think what you would find really quick is there's a lot of, a lot of material out there that if it came under the scrutiny of the word, or if Christ had to approve it, you know what I mean? If he was sitting there going, let's see if I said that sort of thing, there'd be very little that actually came out of that unscathed, you know what I mean? And so uh, when you look at what our culture labels as Christian, there's not a lot of it that's really Christ-like, you know? And, uh, and if it's to be Christian, it's supposed to be what Christ would say, what Christ would desire us to do. It should be a reflection of him, a reflection of, of his words. And, uh, and so we, we got to understand that, and we have to be discerning. Uh, it's not that we're going to always have perfect judgment. You know, there's plenty of times, you know, even when it comes to people, you know, we're to judge, uh, you judge a tree by its fruit, right? False teachers and, and, and false prophets, you'll know them by their fruit, what comes out of their lips and the way they live their lives. You should be able to discern through the word and look at the character, look at the words, see if these things line up. But even in that, I mean, there's, there's, there's some that are just, just look, they look like us, you know, they look like believers. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we are called to judge for the purpose of, first and foremost, knowing how to interact with that person, you know. We don't judge like we're the, the judges of the soul. It's not in our realm or we have nothing to do with heaven and hell, you know what I mean? That's, that's God's territory. But we judge fruit to be able to know how to interact, how to talk to people, how to, how to, to speak to them when it comes to speaking to them as if they're an unbeliever so that we can share the gospel, we can call them to repentance, those sort of things, or speaking to them as a believer to, to edify and encourage and still admonish and, you know, call to repentance, those sort of things. But that's the whole purpose of judgment. But when it comes to um, the, the things that are out there, um, like I said, sermons, written material, things like that, we, we have to have discernment so that we're not just blown here and there by every wave of doctrine and the trickery of men, the deceitfulness of scheming. Um, when, you, uh, when you think about discernment, discernment is the opposite of of, uh, of foolishness, really. I guess if you look in the Bible, biblically, when we talk about foolishness, you know, when we talk about foolishness, I feel like in the culture, we usually think of stupidity. You know what I mean? Someone's foolish is just, they don't have intellect or they're acting like crazy. But foolishness, biblically, uh, there, there's a lot more to it. In fact, um, foolishness in, in the Bible has less to do with intellect and more to do with uh, um, spiritual things, with an understanding of something and then not actually applying that to your life. Um, the difference between someone that's wise and someone that's, fool, that's a fool is more about, you know, the wise person understands what a truth is and then acts according to that truth. You know, and, and a fool understands a truth and acts the opposite of what that truth would be. You know, and I told uh, the youth when we were talking about this, it'd be like you understanding the concept of gravity. You know, maybe you've never experienced it before, but you've read it. You know what gravity is like, and you're standing on the ledge of a building, and you, you've you read in the book that gravity would cause you, if you took that next step, you fall, you know? And so wisdom would say, well, I'm going to act in accordance to what I know and not take that step. Foolishness would be like, let's try it, you know what I mean? And then take the step. And so I think we do that a lot of times as, as believers. We read the Word of God. We understand uh, the holiness of God and, 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 and how much he hates sin. We understand what his character is like and who he is, his patience and kindness and mercy and love and, and his desire for us to walk in love like Christ's love or for his desire for us to imitate him as our, our father and you know, having his spirit within us. 
But then in, in circumstances of life, you know, we, we get angry at people. We get embittered towards people. We act in foolishness. We play with immorality and those sort of things. Because, and that, that would be foolishness. You know what he's like. You know what he said. But then when the time comes to act on that knowledge, you say, I don't, well, you're, you don't say it out loud. And none of us would say it out loud. But what we do in our action is we think, I really don't think what he says is going to happen will really happen. You know, when it says there are no impure, no immoral, no covetous, no idolaters in the kingdom of heaven. And then you're in that situation where you can act in those ways. You can, you can covet what someone else has. You can be angry or embittered at your brother. I mean, what you're doing when you choose that path is you're in some sense saying, I know what he says, but it's probably not that bad. You know what I mean? And so, and that's foolish. And that's, that's really, when, biblically, what, what it looks like to be a fool is to, to basically... To not be faithful to what he says, to, to act in sin, even though we know what the Lord says. Now, all that being said, there's a, a few words in the Bible that you know, are translated uh, fool, especially in the Old Testament, that we can look at. And I think there's two in particular that are very helpful when it comes to understanding uh, the need for discernment and what discernment is. And the first one is uh, the word Nabal or Nabal in, uh, the, in the Old Testament, Hebrew. And it just means closed-minded to God. In fact, there was a guy named Nabal. Uh, I don't remember the story with David. and He's coming up with, with his men. They've been out in the wilderness, and, and, and they've been taking care of this guy's sheep without this guy knowing. And then they ask him for food. or why. It's been a while since I read it, but they ask him for some sort of provision. And, and he's like, why should I give that to them? You know what I mean? And so then they're, they're coming to basically to destroy him and his wife intercedes and she's like his he he's just like his name his name means fool and he's a fool you know and he's just and he just basically closed-minded uh to to helping david and that's the idea behind that word is closed-minded to god it's you're conducting your life as if there is no god you know and we can do that you know that's what we talk about when uh, you have this truth you know what he says and you just willfully and willingly just act against it because you could care less. And you're closed-minded to what God says, and you're not going to listen to him. As if there was no judgment behind it, if there was no accountability to those words, as if his words are just kind of wind, you know? And all of us make that, that choice at times in our life when we sin. You know, we read the words, and we just think, uh, like I said, you know, they're, they're probably not as weighty as they sound to me right now, you know? And, and then we run that way. But another aspect of foolishness that I think also comes into play here is uh, in Psalm uh, uh, 14, 1 through 3. Actually, I, I just flipped those. Uh, the, the Psalm 14 is the, the closed-minded thing. In Proverbs 14 is another idea of foolishness. And, uh, and it's, it's the word petty. And it, it's like the idea of being naive or, simple, or simple-minded. Or the, the Jewish people would call it open-minded. And I think that's a good way to look at it for us. The, the epitome of being foolish is being open-minded. It's, it's opening your mind up to whatever and having no filter and just letting whatever come in as if it's all on the same level. You know what I mean? And uh, that is exalted in our culture. That's what we're, ta- we're called to be in our culture. Yeah. Are you equally authoritative on those things? Just lacking the, the ability to know whether it's right or wrong. You know? Yeah, maybe equally authoritative. I mean, if God's words are equal and, and can be compared to man's words, there's a foolishness about that, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and I think you can get into, you know, we're, we're presuppositionalists and, and when it comes to apologetics and stuff like that, and we understand that, you know, you're not going to argue people to God through science or, or, or uh, history or anything like that. Um, but, but that kind of idea of being able to, you know, apologetically 
point someone to Christ through argument really is doing that sort of same thing. It's like, you know, you think you can, with intellect, get this person to see something spiritual, which there's just two different realms, you know. If God doesn't open his mind, I mean, you can show him Christ risen from the dead, and he's still not going to believe, you know. And uh, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, so the authority of the words. But I think also just, just, like I said, just taking things in. You know, you read a book, it's got scripture all through it, and you're like, wow, it must be true, you know, just because they quote scripture everywhere. And, and I think that would be open-minded. Open-minded would also just be listening to the, the voices and the, I mean, like I said, there's so much material out there, so many sermons, so many books, so many everything, all in the name of God, right? And, and being open-minded, we'd just be listening, being like, well, I got some good stuff out of that. That sounded really good. I really like that point, you know, without having precise discernment and looking and scrutinizing it with the word. Um, so, and, and uh, uh, like I said, in, the, in the, the Hebrew mind, the naive believe everything. And that's, that's kind of the idea of it, just being open-minded and believing, you know? It's like, wow, that really impacted me, you know? Therefore, what you're saying, therefore, it was true, you know? And, and without actually seeing, is it true? Uh, Proverbs fourteen fifteen says that. Now, the naive believe everything, but the sensible man considers his step. There's thoughtful, I think that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, where he says, you know, be careful how you walk. You want to walk with purity and with wisdom and, and discernment. So, uh, in our culture, we believe everything. Actually, the only unspeakable and unbelievable thing in our culture is to have someone that's closed off to a particular belief, right? That's the unspeakable sin, you know? It's like, I think that's wrong. It's like, no, 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 nothing is wrong. You're wrong if you think that's wrong. That's kind of the, that's, that's the only discernment people have. And, and we, we've, you know that. To be closed-minded is derogatory, right? If you go around to everybody and start saying, hey, we need to be more closed-minded. We need to just close our minds to anything outside of this one thing. Well, I mean, you'd, the, the whole culture would call you the idiot. But that's exactly what the Bible says. You want to close your mind to anything outside of what God says. There's one truth. Everything outside of that one truth, close your mind to that. It doesn't mean you, don't, you can't read a book like that. It doesn't mean that you can't think about that thing. In fact, you have to to engage in the culture. But you need to be closed off to anything outside of God's verbal inspired word equating itself to truth. Does that make sense? And actually, and, uh, you, you know, when we talk about discerning, to be discerning means to, to make a judgment call, right? Between right or wrong, good, better, evil, whatever it may be. And, I mean, that's a, that's a bad word in our, our culture, to be discriminating. I mean, if you just say that, let's, let's all discriminate. It's immediate, it's like, no, 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 no. It's like, shh, don't say the D word, you know? Like, but, I mean, you have to discriminate. If you're not a discriminating Christian, we're not talking about race. We're talking about wisdom. We're talking about truth and, and fallacy. If you're not discriminating, then, then, you're, then you're naive. You're foolish. You're allowing whatever to, to be there. And so... You know, these, these words, I think that's just part of Satan's tactic. Just associate with these words, uh, like, like I said, like sin or, or, you know, like segregation, discrimination, closed-mindedness. Those are three bad words in the culture. All three of those things we must have as Christians. Again, not racially, not, not we're segregating in a sinful way, but we must segregate in the sense of we are holy and set apart, and we are different than this world, and we must understand that. The stance of a Christian and the stance of the culture is completely different. What we are as Christians and what those of the world are is completely different. One's alive, one's dead. One's born again, one's not. One's of the light, one's of the darkness. Those are all segregating and discriminating terms. So 
we have to be able to, to judge and to see those sort of things. That's another word, right? Judgment. Judgment, segregation, discrimination, discernment, closed-mindedness. I'm going to teach you to be all of those things <laughs> when it comes to God's Word because we have to have discernment, and you have to know that. In our culture, it's, it's wrapped up in a lot of different terms, you know, uh, the, the things that fight against this. Uh, we have a subjective, relative, pragmatic, postmodern, existential culture, you know, and all those words basically just mean you can't really figure out truth, you know, to be, to be uh, if some, uh, like a, a subjectivism or relativism basically says there's no absolute truths at all. You know, no, all opinions are subjective, you know. If that's what you think, that's great. But I think different, and they're both equally okay. Or, or um, you know, truth is based on perception. Truth is based on your own values. Truth is based on basically you. You're the author and the approver of, of truth. And most of our culture believes that. To be pragmatic, you know, basically that's truth is based on the success of, of whatever happens, you know, and, and we talk about pragmatic churches, that's what we're talking about. They do things based on, uh, on, on studies, you know, you go read the Barna group and whatever the Barna group says works, then you apply that to parenting or you apply that to church membership or you apply that to, you know, and it's, it's not, what does the word of God say? It's, it's what works. You know, we've had 47 churches do this. And they had this amount of attendance growth and this amount of salvation and conversions. And we had these other, you know, 53 churches that did this and they had less of those things. Therefore, what these churches are doing is correct. And we need to follow in the footsteps of these churches. That makes that, that'd be pragmatic. And we do that all the time. John MacArthur says, pragmatism is sweeping through evangelicalism. He said, traditional methodology, most notably preaching, is being discarded or downplayed in favor of new means. Things like drama, dance, comedy, variety, sideshows. Um, uh, pop psychology and other entertainment forms in the church. He says these new methods supposedly are more effective. You know, they've done studies. Puppet shows are more effective than a guy just standing there talking for 45 minutes. So let's do a puppet show and convert people, you know. And so that's pragmatism. And uh, he says they draw a bigger crowd. And since the chief criterion for gauging the success of a church has become attendance figures, whatever pulls in the most people is accepted without any further analysis if it's good. That's pragmatism. You look at the results, look at the success, Andy Stanley's church is the, one of the biggest churches in the world. What's he doing? We need to do that. We need to follow in suit. What, what are they teaching in their Sunday schools? What are they doing in their church services? What are they doing with their music? What are they, and, and then and make a, a B version because you don't have the resources and the money and the space that they have. And so these other churches adopt that methodology to try to increase numbers, to try to reach the community, those sort of things. That's pragmatism. That, that's, that's, that's the American church. Uh, existentialism is basically each person is responsible for giving meaning to life. Your experience validates truth or interprets the truth. So your experience uh, is, is and, and what you have experienced in life proves what's true and what's not, you know? Uh, and that's where, you know, I think the whole experience thing, that's, that's what the charismatic movement thrives on, that just experience. You know, you, you, you have visions and feelings and emotional highs and dreams and all those things, and those become the evidence of the truth of the word of God or the evidence of your salvation, you know, and I used to feel like that. I, I remember I had a friend whose mom just got baptized over and over and over and kept getting saved because she would get saved and she would lose her salvation and she would get saved and then she would lose her salvation. And the loss of salvation always came with the guilt of sin. You know, she would do some sort of sin. I guess that sin just kind of went over that little marker of grace, wherever that grace marker was in her mind of God's, you know, the, the limit of God's grace. And when she lost the salvation, then she had to have those emotions and repent and get rebaptized and all those sort of things. And, I, you know, you may not go through the actions of getting rebaptized and walking the aisle again and praying that prayer for the 47th time, 
But we have those feelings. And I think the charismatic movement plays into those feelings. I think the church is built on those kind of things, appeasing that need for experience, that need for signs and wonders. It's, it's what the, the crowds were asking for when Jesus was around, you know? One more sign, one more wonder, one more thing to prove that you're who you say you are because I, I want that and I need that, you know? And so what did you call that? existentialism. And then uh, you got postmodernism, and that's just basically a distrust towards anything that's objective. Objective morality, objective reality, objective truth, objective reason, you know? It's like nothing can just be objectively true. And, uh, and yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so, and, and you, you hear that, I mean, again, you hear it in the, in our, in our circles sometimes. It's like, well, the Bible means this to me, or that, that verse really hit me because of this, you know, and, and, you know, what it means to you is what it means to you, what it means to me, what it means to me. That's what I used to think. And I, I remember talking to, to Christians, and I, I claimed to be a believer growing up, but I felt like you read the Bible, and, and that's a personal thing, and what God says to you is what you need to hear, and what God says to me is what I need to hear, but you got no business telling me what he said, and I got no business telling you what he said, you know what I mean? That's a, and I think that's, that lines up into, that's a few of those things mixed together, but that's the, the postmodern idea is just uh, anything can be explained away as, oh, that, well, that's your interpretation. You know what I mean? It's like you read this verse. It's like the Bible says that if you love me, you will obey. And it's like, well, yeah, that's your interpretation. But I think Jesus probably meant something different there. And it's like, you're, it's like that's what he said, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just said it. Uh, so anyway, all that being said, that's the kind of world that we live in. And so in the world we live in, truth is always changing, right? What was true 10 years ago is not true today. What's true to you is not true to me. Um, and, uh, and, and if you really try to keep up with all the heresy and keep up with everything that's false, I mean, it's, it's an unending cycle, and, and they just rebrand the same heresies over and over and over. And I was telling my, uh, my youth, and maybe the college group this too, uh, you know, when uh, I was reading a book on, I can't remember the dude's name, but he, was, uh, he, he would um, identify counterfeit money, but the way that they teach guys to identify counterfeit money is by showing them the actual thing. They study the actual thing so much that all the counterfeits just, it's easy to see them. It's like, well, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. You know what I mean? You don't study all the counterfeits because the counterfeits are always changing. There's always new ones. There's, if you were trying to study the counterfeit, you would, it would be an unending, an unending task, and you would never exhaust all the different counterfeits. So you study the real thing, and by knowing the real thing well, better than anyone else, oh, the counterfeits are easy to identify. You just know them. And it's the same thing with Christianity. We must know the word, not just the word. We must know the author of the word. We need to know his character. We need to know what he's like. We need to know how he speaks. We need to know what it looks like when someone truly follows him and, and knows him. And we need to know the content of his word as well. So when you see a counterfeit, it's like, well, that's not, that's not right. Now, I think that's what Jesus is talking about with the fruit, right? Even with people, they come up and they're speaking the same words. But real quick, you're like, we don't mean the same thing. You know what I mean? They'll say grace, faith, mercy, forgiveness. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I know those words, but me and you are not talking the same language when we talk about those things. And that's the same thing with that Mary book I was telling you, I was just reading. I mean, I would agree with like 90% of the, the content in that book because he was quoting the Bible. And it was like, yeah, I... I'm, I'm there, there, there. But the connections of those verses to what he's pushing were completely wrong, you know? And so, again, that's, that's where discernment comes in. And uh, we have to know the word. We have to know um, God. And so how do we know what's true and what's not? How are we able to discriminate between truth and error? The first and foremost thing is you, you must know God. You have to know what he's like. 
I was just reading in Exodus 33. Actually, I, was, uh, I love this verse. If you look at Exodus 33, it's right before God tells Moses. Um, this is what I, I got to stick to my notes because I'm never going <laughs> to. The, these, these things happen. But uh, so, so, I mean, think about this. You got to look at the context. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days talking to God, right? I mean, that's, that's a little bit unusual. The Israelites have come out. They've seen all the miracles, all that sort of stuff in Egypt and everything. And the fire and darkness of God, from what it looks like in the Bible, are, are still happening on the mountain. I mean, you would think in the midst of that, oh, I thought, you're coming to get me. <laughs> Was it that bad? <laughs> um, do you need more? Okay. Um, so, I mean, imagine this, though. The fire and the darkness of God are still there, thundering and whatever is doing. Moses is still up on the mountain. And some, somehow, I guess the Israelites got used to that. Because in the middle of that, they start worshiping this golden calf in Exodus 32. And, I mean, you look at it and you think, that's crazy. Why would you ever do that? But you and I would have done the same thing if we were sitting there with them. Some, somehow, they got to that place. And so, uh, but anyway, so, you know, Moses comes down, breaks the commandments, or breaks the tablets and all that sort of stuff, and rebukes the Israelites and everything. And then God basically says, listen, I've got to wipe these people out. You know, I mean, I just, I just can't go with you guys like they're going to provoke me to anger and I'm going to kill them all you know and, and Moses is like well don't do that because you promised Abraham and I you know and, and again that was just that was for Moses uh to to see you know God's faithfulness and and to talk about who God is but anyway all that being said Moses was there with God and Moses would go with God and speak to God and in, in 33 you see him doing that and then in verse 12 ish yeah 12 uh God has told Moses you know you know I've chosen you you find favor in my sight, those sort of things. And look at what he says, so cool. He says, see, you say to me, so Moses is saying to God, God, you say to me, bring up these people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you've said, I have known you, Moses, by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. And then Moses says to God, now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that, purpose clause, I may find favor in your sight. And, and I, I thought that's, that's the mark of a Christian right there. That's the mark of a true believer. You've been called by God, chosen, predestined from the foundation of the world. He knows you. He's put his spirit within you. You're known by him. You're pleasing in his sight. You're his child. And any child wants to know their father. They want to know his ways. And the reason they want to know who he is and what he does is because they want to follow him. They want to be like him. They want to imitate him. They're not earning heaven with their obedience. They're not earning heaven with their submission. They just want to imitate their father. They want to be close to him. They love him and they want to imitate him and they fear him and they want to cling to him and be any, to be as far away from the things that, he, that repulse him or that, that grieve him as possible, right? And that's what Moses is expressing here. If I found favor in your sight, if you've called me by name, help me to know you so that I may know your ways so that I may find favor in your sight. And that's, that's what believers are like. And so you must know God. The only way, again, to, to first thing, to please him, but secondly, to discern what is of him and what's not is to know who he is, to know his character, to know his ways, to know God. And if you know God, if you know what he's like, if you know what his mercy sounds like and looks like biblically, if you know what his grace is like and what that has done through his son and to the Israelites and to even before that with Noah and all of them and even now in the church age and even in the, the future age to come and the tribulation and all that, I mean, you can describe the grace of God and the mercy of God, the, 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 the omnipotence of God and all those things. It's not just an intellectual concept that you studied out of a systematic theology. You know him. You, you speak to him every morning, you're in his word every day, and you understand how he works. So that when someone else comes up and says, God said, you're like, no, he didn't. I know him. He didn't say that. 
You know, I had a vision from God, and this is why I saw it. No, you didn't, because I know him. I understand where his, his word is, and it doesn't come out of your mind, you know? They, they say, well, I read his word, and it says this. And you're like, no, it doesn't, because I know him. I know what his word says, and I study it. I'm with him every day. I'm striving to be like him, and my father would never speak like that. So you have to know him. It's not just an intellectual thing. That's what I said at the very beginning, right? We equate foolishness and discernment and wisdom with just intellect. It's almost like it, it can be uh, separate from experience or a, a separate from, from character or those sort of things. But, but part of discernment is knowing who God is so that you can know whether or not what this person is saying about him is truly like him. Does that make sense? And, and you can't just make up who God is. That's, that's another thing we do. That's a, a lack of discernment is you believe God is love, right? Because it says God is love. But you define what love is based on what you think love is or based on what the culture thinks love is. Therefore, anything outside of your definition of love is not God. And it's like, no, no, no. you got to bring your understanding of love underneath into submission to what he says love is. And then you can discern the love of God. But you can't, you, know, you can't make up your own idea of what God is and then try to get the true God to fit into your criteria. You must know his character. You must know his nature. And the only way to do that is you've got to know his word, right? That's the second part of discernment. You must know the word of God. Even Jesus. I love in John. We've been studying John, or we were, in the college group recently. And there's so many times. I mean, Jesus is God on earth, right? He proved it in his miracles. He proved it in who he was. Even his, I mean, he just was a constant fulfillment of pride. Everything about his life was like, this guy's the Messiah. This guy's God, you know? But, on, but it was, it's crazy how many times as he was on earth speaking, he always said, I speak nothing on my own. Even Jesus lived in submission to the Father at all times, though he was God. And he only spoke God's word. He only spoke God's will. He only did what God told him to do. And, and, and he even talked about, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the, the apostles, the, the disciples, bringing to remembrance all of these things that he's spoken, which is what we have in the New Testament, so that we have the word of God. But I would just, uh, I, I threw down some of these quotes of him. Uh, of Jesus speaking, and he was just saying, John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear from my Father. I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I mean, even his judgment was based upon the submission to God's judgment, which he only did according to what he heard. And then John 12.45-50, he says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. So, I mean, to believe in Christ is to believe in God, to believe in the Father. And that he says that later to the apostles. If you've seen me and you see the Father. He says, um, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Look at this. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings does have someone who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. What you hold in your hands, the Bible, right there, it, it, that's everything that, that uh, an omniscient, perfect, discerning God knew that, that all of mankind would need. Wherever you came along in history, what he has revealed is exactly what we need to know, not only to know him, to follow him, to believe him, but it's sufficient to judge us fully on the day of judgment. He won't judge us with things that he held secret, that we had no ability to know. 
that we had no accountability to. He'll judge us with what he has revealed. He has revealed himself as fully as he needs to. I mean, think about that too, you know? We're, we're not foolish enough to think that what you have in a little book reveals the full depth of the character and the mind and the will and the ways of God, right? That does not reveal his, his, uh, his unending, everlasting majesty and power and glory. It reveals enough for your little pea brain mind to grasp it a little bit enough to understand he is who he says he is. And that's plenty to judge us in the last day. He won't judge us with things outside of this standard. But this standard's plenty to judge us. And that's what Jesus says. He's like, listen, I'm not going to judge you now. One day everyone will stand before me, and it's the words that I spoke that will judge them. We have his word. We have to know his word. We need to know him. We need to know his word. Not only because it's enough to judge us and to judge all things, but, but we ourselves need to have judging discernment in this life to know what is of him and what is not so that we're not fooled by the things that aren't. And we're, we're very discerning and understanding of the things that are. And that comes into everything, in your family, uh, in church. It's going to play out in, in many uh, areas. It's not just an academic endeavor. I mean, you have to discern with your children as they walk along, and as they come to the Lord or don't come to the Lord, discern their words, discerning their actions. You have to discern with, in, your, in your family, with your, uh, with your spouse. You have to discern in the workplace. You're always discerning and striving to understand what is of the Lord, what's not. What is my role? If this is not of the Lord, then I need to be far from that, right? Um, so you have to know the Lord. You have to know his word. And the third thing, you have to have his spirit. There is no discernment minus the spirit of God. Again, you can have an intellectual understanding of the Bible says. You know, a lot of the, the best commentaries on the, the Greek and the Hebrew, some of these scholars that just know the languages back and forth, I mean, they can write just crazy, just, I mean, they've gathered in all the different, you know, ways that this word has been used from this period of time to this period of time, and they can show you all the nuances and, the, and, and where this word came from, all those things. But they don't actually believe that the one who spoke those words was God or even came from God. You know what I mean? They can tell you all the nuances of the Hebrew and the Greek, but they don't believe the inspiration of those actual words. They're just words. And uh, you have to have the Spirit of God to discern what his word says. Look at 1 Corinthians real quick, uh, 1 and 2. And again, we don't have time to read the whole thing. But I, I believe this is a, these are great chapters when it comes to uh, understanding how the Word and the Spirit work. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18 and going all through chapter 2. Really, it's just Paul describing uh, the wisdom of God and the discernment that God gives, and it's all reliant upon the Spirit. He starts out in verse 18 by saying, The word of the cross is foolishness, those are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You read the same words as your neighbor next to you. You read them, you're convicted, you're broken, you see the majesty of God, the greatness of Christ and his mercy and his glory and all those sort of things, and you're just like, oh, it's him, you know? And the dude next to you reads the same words, and it's like, eh, that's cool. You know, just nothing. I, or even like, I just completely disagree. Whatever the reaction, there's just, for one, it's the power of God, and to the other one, it's just this foolishness. It's just it's just nothing. And he keeps talking about that, just how the world reacts, how the Jews react, and, and what Christ is, you know, and how God doesn't necessarily choose the, the wise and the strong, but he chooses the simple, and he chooses the weak, and he chooses those who basically are going to be humble, dependent children of his. But if you keep reading, he keeps going, then he describes where this, the difference actually lies. And, uh, you know, in... Um, uh, he equates it to the, the spirit. He starts talking about the difference between the wisdom they speak and the wisdom of the world. And then he, verse uh, 9, he quotes, I think that's Isaiah, where he says, things have not seen, ear has not heard, which has entered in the heart of man, all that God prepared for those who love them. So these words right here 
are the words that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's it. This is for us. This is for the family. This is for the children of God. This is for us to be able to know him and to be with him, to understand him while we're on this earth, separated from him. One day we'll see him face to face. We'll be with him. We'll know him like he knows us. But for right now, this is, this is our knowledge of him. This is what our fathers left us. And then he says this, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. So the Spirit of God knows God fully. God, the Spirit of God knows God because the Spirit of God is God. And the Spirit of God uh, uh, searches all things that are of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man in him? Even so that the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Did you hear that? Think about that. You, you don't know me. You can take what I say. You can watch how I live. You can see what I've done. And you can make a judgment call and an assessment of what I am, right? But you don't know what I think. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. You only hear the words, and you can only discern what you think you hear from what comes out of my lips. But you don't know my heart. You don't know my mind, and you never will. It's impossible for you to understand the depths of who I am. And that's just a person. Now, now apply that to God, who is infinitely everything, you know, infinitely existing, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowing. I mean, for you to think that you know him, that's crazy. And then for you to think that you know him, apart from him allowing you in some way to know him, it's just absurd. I mean, that'd be like you trying to discern who I am. You didn't even know I existed. That, I mean, it's just crazy. But look at what he says here. The spirit, though, the spirit of God knows God, just like the spirit of Brian knows Brian. And then he says this. He says, now we have received the spirit, not of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? Purpose clause. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. What was freely given to us? This. What's the only way to know this? Through the spirit of God. So that we can now know the things freely given to us by God. In other words, the only way to have discernment, the only way to know God, and the only way to know his word and understand it is to have the spirit within you to therefore interpret those words so that you know who he is. And then look at what he keeps, it's just it's crazier. He says, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in uh, those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. I think it's just, there, there's debate on how that's translated, but I think the point there is we speak about things that, we're, that, that this is from the Spirit and we have the Spirit within us to be able to interpret and understand right, rightly, the, the ways, the word, the will, the mind of God. Again, now you mix in your own humanity and your sinfulness, your maturity or immaturity, and, and of course you're going to grow in your understanding as you continue to, to follow him and submit to him. But the Spirit is what prompts, begins, or even allows that understanding to, to begin with. And if you have the Spirit, you can discern him. And then look at this. He says, The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. They're outside of his own judgment. He can't judge those things. He has no capacity. But look at this. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, everything. You are the best judge of creation. You know, you got all these people telling us it's billions of years and all that sort of stuff. You have better judgment than them because you know the creator. Does that make sense? Even if you don't have a scientific mind and haven't studied all the, all the, the facts and the evidences, you know more than the, the most learned scientists that think there's been millions of years because you know the creator. And you, you know, I mean, I just read Genesis and it didn't take millions of years. And, and I mean, of course, they look at you and think you're absurd, but, but you honestly stand in much more wisdom and better judgment than all of them with all of their academic learning and everything else. You're way closer to the truth, even though you can't describe most of the things they can say scientifically, because you know him. And, and, and you who is spiritual can discern 
with spiritual eyes and with a spiritual understanding because you bring everything back under scrutiny of his word. So it's like you read your science book and you're like, let's run that through this and see what comes out on the other end. There's only like three words that make it through. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but the thing is, is you have that discernment. But look, it gets even crazier. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Now that's again an Old Testament quote. And the answer is no one. The answer is nobody. No one instructs God and no one knows his mind. But look at what he says combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. That's a new covenant promise right there. This is something that happened after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, him sending the Holy Spirit. We live in a a different age than the Israelites lived when they they first heard that. That God now puts his spirit within the hearts of those who believe in him. That we are now united in Christ through this Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ it's called. In in John, he, he says, if you believe in me, I and the Father will come and we will be with you. He says that the Spirit will be in you. He unites us together with himself spiritually to be able to discern his words. I'm not saying you're going to discern it 100% accurately all the time. But as you submit to it, as you obey it, as you study it, you will know him more and more clearly so that you will be able to discern what is from his lips, what is not, what is like him in character and what is not, who is of him and who is not, or, or even those who are of him but are not acting like they are. Does that make sense? And those things come through knowing who he is, knowing his word, and knowing his spirit. We have the mind of Christ, and you have to understand that. And that's not a, a boastful thing, like, oh, I'm smarter than, I have the mind of Christ. You know, I have the mind of the creator of this universe. He's saying he's giving you these things so you can know him. And, 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 and this goes along with all the other scripture he talks about, that he loses none of his children. He makes sure, I mean, it's God's job, and God doesn't exaggerate, but every single work he begins, he perfects until the day of Christ. He's working in all of us to sanctify us, to change us, both in our thoughts and our actions, our character, our, 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 our ethics, everything, who we are, the relationships we have with one another. He's doing all of that to make sure that we're without spot, without blemish, without sin, and he's going to do that until the day of Christ, where he completes the work and we're made like him. And that's, that's just what he does. That's the work of God. That's the work of Christ. But he's not left us ill-equipped. He's given us his spirit, and he's given us his mind to be able to interpret the words that he gave to us so we can know him, and we can know him rightly. Not perfectly, but rightly and accurately. And that's why it's so important to read the word and, and interpret it exactly like it said. That's, that's the, the, the foundation of the hermeneutic we have as a church, you know, We want to study it grammatically and historically, contextually, because we want to know what did God mean when he said this? What did God utter to these people? What would these people have understood when they heard these words? Because God doesn't speak in a way that's vague. God doesn't speak in a way that you can't understand. He speaks clearly and precisely so that his children can hear his voice and know exactly who he is and what he wants and what he desires, what he's like. The word of God is precise and clear. And every child of God knows that. It's only those who are outside of the fold that think this is vague, or there's all these like, mysteries within it that you have to decode and those sort of things. The child of God reads this and goes, no, is my father speaking directly to me? I see what he's saying here. You know? But you look at it contextually, historically, grammatically, those things just enhance your clear understanding of the word. But the more you read it, you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to know the word of God. God's not you know, limited by language. And you're able to, to understand his word in the English, we, you know, to just as well as in the Greek and the Hebrew, but it doesn't hurt to, to know those things. Anyway, sorry, that was a, a tangent. So I'll sum it up real quick here. Oh, well, actually, one more thing. Another part of being discerning is being part of the body of Christ. 
uh, you know, we, you never want to leave the church. You never want to, like, walk out of Sunday school early. You know what I mean? You got to, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> See you, club. <laughs> Now, you, you, we need to be an active part of the body of Christ. Again, culturally, this is just, I mean, the, the, Satan knows how to undermine the things that will grow us up and cause maturity. We look at church, it's just you shop around for, you know, I like this music over here and the kids' system, or the kids, you know, the youth group over here and these things. But, but you must be part of the body of Christ and plugged into the body of Christ. Look at Ephesians 4 real quick. This is, a, I think, one of the best descriptions of the church in the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul's describing what we are in Christ, and, and you got to look at it because the, the, the body of Christ, the church, has been given to edify, to sanctify, and to grow us in maturity. All of those things are part of discernment. We need all that. You, you must be sanctified to be discerning. You must be, uh, you must be mature to be discerning. You, you have to be part of the church. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. In other words, that means just to, to walk equal to in balance with what you say you are. I am of Christ. What was Christ? Like this. And, and where you see yourself fall short, then hem it up. Get, you know, it's like his love is here. Well, my love is here. And so the more you know what his love is like, the more you strive to love like he loved and to be kind as he is kind. So you walk in a manner worthy of him. And he explains what that looks like. With all humility, all gentleness, all patience. This is unending. Unending humility, gentleness, and patience. It's showing tolerance to one another in love. So it's, t- I mean, I'm going to sin against you and you're going to sin against me. It's going to happen in the family, all right? And we got to love one another. You cover that stuff. I mean, it's, it don't hide sin, you know, but it's like, but don't be easily offended at your brother and, 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 and act in vengeance and have bitterness and those sort of things. You tolerate one another. You be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then look at this. He says, look, there's one body. There's one body of Christ, one spirit, just as you're called in one hope uh, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. We're united by the spirit of God, by the same calling, by the same Lord, by the same, we're in the same family. And he says, one God and father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now look at this, but to each of us, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each of us is gifted differently, purposefully, to be that one body. Uh, and you read about that in Corinthians where he talks about, you know, the, the hand's not the foot and the foot's not the mouth. And, the, you know, and you can't, the eye can't look at the nose and say, you know, you, you shouldn't be that way. I mean, we all bring something to the family, to the table. But he goes on saying, he gives us these gifts. Verse 9, um, let's see, it talks about Christ coming down, the whole purpose, him uh, dying and ascending. And then it says, verse 11, he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Uh, we're not going to the nuances of that. Basically, the point of all those people is to speak in some capacity the word and the will of God so that others can know him. I mean, that's the purpose of the pastors, stand up there on Sunday morning to study the word so that he can speak God's word to you and you can know what the word means. But look at all this. So the preaching of the word, basically, the gathering of the church, all this is for a purpose. And he says uh, it's for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints. Why? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. How mature? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the point of church. We gather together to edify one another, to equip one another so that we're ready for the work of service that we have to do. Your work as a husband, your work as a father, your work as an employee, your work as a boss, your work as a human being on this planet that knows 
the king and is sent into the world to tell others of him. The, the, the church and the gathering of the body, that's the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of service, to build us up together as the body of Christ, to continue to increase us in maturity, in discernment, in wisdom, in love, in patience, in, in stature, until we look exactly like Christ, unified in faith, unified in, in our knowledge of who Christ is, so that we are all mature in him and we know him and we're acting like him, both together collectively and then individually as we go out into the world. That's the whole point of church. It's, it's not about you individually having some need met. It's not about you feeling emotionally well or not well. It's about, it's about you being an active part of the body. You need to edify me as much as I edify you. You encourage me as I encourage you. You admonish me as I admonish you. All for the purpose of glorifying Christ and imitating him, being like him. And we're family. We're, we're, we're tighter. I was telling the, the college kids this recently. We are tight. If you have the spirit of Christ in you, then we are eternally connected as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Forever, forever family, eternally connected by the Holy Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus Christ with one Father. That's an eternal connection. That's tighter than any blood relation. Blood relation dies when you die. And, and it's great you have family here on earth, but even on earth that stuff doesn't last sometimes. Families are broken. People don't talk to each other for the rest of their life. Son doesn't talk to mom forever, those sort of things. But with the family of God, that can't be. There can be no hostility between us. We must be... Per- constantly preserving the unity of faith and the bond of peace. We have the spirit of God within us, beckoning us, convicting us to be patient, humble, and kind, gentle, tolerant, those sort of things. And we're united by the spirit of Christ for all eternity. We are more family than, like I said, blood relation that's, that's not born again forever. And that's our, that's our lot together. And we have to be a part of one another for these things. It grows us in maturity. It grows us in understanding of Christ. It grows us in unity together. It grows us so that we know him. And part of that would be discernment. And he tells you that in verse 14. As a result of this, being part of the church, he says, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, We grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is being fit together and held together, every joint supplied according to the proper working of each individual part, which causes the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love. That's what we do for one another. The whole purpose is you help me be like Christ, I will help you be like Christ, so that we look like Christ together and then, like I said, individually as we go out. And that's the purpose of the church. And we have to speak to one another. As in Hebrews 3, right? Speak to one another as long as today is called today, always encouraging one another so that none of us are fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. I will be fooled and you will be fooled. Sin is deceitful and we still fight it and we still have it in us. You're a fool to think that you can't be fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm just saying sin can deceive you. It deceived Israel. It deceived the apostles. It deceived, it deceives all people. Jesus even talks about at the end times, the Antichrist is coming, the deceit is so thick and so, so, uh, um, what am I trying to say? It looks so good that even the elect would have been deceived if that were possible. I mean, the only thing that keeps us united with Christ, the only reason that you still believe that you're still walking with him, that you're still faithful to him, that you still are, are united with him is, is him. You would not on your own remain with Christ. You wouldn't have come to him you wouldn't stay with him, and you would never persevere to the end. All of that is a grace gift held by the hands of God. 
and to think that you're above the deceitfulness of sin, you are the epitome of foolishness. We must speak to one another. We must be plugged into the church. That's what uh, Hebrews 3 talks about. He says, uh, if we become partakers of Christ, in verse 14, if we hold fast the beginning of the assurance of our faith, firm to the end, then while it said, today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they provoked me, uh, they per- in the wilderness, talking about Israel. Actually, I think I read ahead of it. Where does he say? Oh, before that, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage uh, one another today, or day after day, as long as it's still called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need you if you're in the family. And you need me if you're in the family. And we must speak of him all the time to one another, of his truth, of his character, of his ways, of his will, doing these things formally like in a Bible study and then doing it as a family, getting together before work and and having Bible studies, doing it in our family with our children, with our wives, constantly talking about Christ together so that we're edified, we're encouraged, we're built up together so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you distance yourself from the church, you will be deceived. If you distance yourself from communion with one another, from edifying and encouraging one another, you will be deceived. Why do you think the, the, the bad guys, the wolves, the, the wolves come from within? I mean, you ought to know that by now, you know, being in this church for the last two or three years. The wolves come from within. Those things happen all the time in the church. It's always happening. It, 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 you know, the next wolf is probably with us right now. It's just those things happen, okay? And, and it's going to happen. But they prey on the ones that are on the periphery. They're on, they're on the outside, they, they, they find the ones that have little things. You're bitter in your heart towards someone else for some reason. You've been hurt or offended in this way for whatever reason. Just something like that. And they, and they, pick, they pick off the ones on the edge. And that's how wolves work in nature, and that's how they work in the church. And, and when you disassociate, become disconnected from the body, you're not part of that encouragement, that edification, that admonishment. You're not, I mean, you, you know, in the family. I mean, you're, 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 you're victim to be prey to the wolves. When you're not in the midst of the family, being edified and encouraged, you're just reading whatever book you think is good, listening to whatever sermons you think is good. I mean, the, the, again, you're just kind of putting yourself in that place of being naive, of, of being fooled by words, by different people, by guys that don't care about you. They're not concerned about your soul. They just want you to listen to them and follow them. They're not concerned about, I mean, these pastors on TV, I'm not dogging on every pastor on TV. There's some good ones, you know, but... They don't know you. John MacArthur's not your pastor. Jerry Ragg's not your pastor. John Piper's not your pastor. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm not saying they're not saying good things. They say great things. But they don't know you, and they're not shepherding your soul in that sense. Shane Kohler, Joel Teague, Randy Cook, uh, what's the other guys? Mike Payne, <laughs> Lee Parker. Those guys, those who God has sent to us, and then we have one another. These people in here are the family. We come alongside each other to edify, to encourage, to admonish. I mean, we have to see that and how important the body of Christ is. Again, because that is, that is integral in our having discernment and in our not being fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. So anyway, I took a thousand tangents. I don't even know if half that, like, yeah. Anyway, so we got to, the whole point was we got to be discerning. But you're not going to do that on your own. You're not going to do that through reading books. You know? You're not going to do that through learning languages. You're going to be discerning by knowing God, knowing his word, having the spirit of Christ, being plugged into the body of Christ, and doing the work. It's really about obedience. It's really about uh, wisdom is really tied in more to obedience and holiness than it is with intellect and understanding. Not that we're disregarding that, but 
Yeah. Engaging the culture, yeah. <laughs> Man, I heard a guy recently. Yeah, <laughs> another tangent. Well, I was talking to, yeah, I, 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 what's the guy's name? It's one that, that Hillsong dude up in New York. I can't remember his name, but he was talking. Yeah, he was like, he said, he said, yeah, we hustle the culture for the church. Like, he's basically saying we use the culture and we use the things of the culture to draw people into the church so that they can be born again. It's like, man, you, you are just, like, Satan. Satan is just sitting there going, that's right, you do. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's the opposite of God. We, we, we are, yeah, sorry, opposite of culture, completely set apart for the purpose of who? His children seeing him, right? The children of God see holiness, and they see that separateness, and that's what draws them to Christ. They're not going to see you're flirting with the culture and looking like things that are popular and go, oh, I want to be like Christ. You know, it's like the child of God is drawn to holiness, and they're drawn to truth. And the Lord draws them out of the darkness into light through the, the holiness of the church. But, yeah, anyway. So let me pray for us.